Hi guys, my name is Frank Chaparro, Senior Correspondent at The Block. You might know me as Frankie Scoops or Fintech Frank, but hopefully now you'll get to know me as the host of The Block's new podcast called The Scoop, made especially for decision makers and thrill seekers in the crypto market. Each week, I, along with one of my cohorts here at The Block, will talk with CEOs, innovators, and builders across the crypto market. I'd like to take a minute to thank our sponsor, Cash App. Cash App has been the number one finance app in the App Store for almost two years. It was also the first major peer-to-peer payments app to start supporting Bitcoin, and it's still the fastest and easiest way to on-ramp fiat. No more waiting five days for your ACH payments to come through. With Cash App, you can buy Bitcoin instantly. It's also a favorite of the block analyst, Steven Zhang. He uses Cash App when he goes to Chipotle and gets money back. He saves every time he eats a burrito. That keeps Steven happy, that keeps the block happy, and that keeps the crypto world informed with the best news and research in the entire market. You can also use it at Lyft, Whole Foods, Chipotle, as I said, Chick-fil-A, Starbucks, and Dunkin' Donuts. Download Cash App today from the App Store or Google Play. I hope you enjoy the episode. Hello, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to The Scoop, the Blocks podcast for crypto thrill seekers and decision makers. We today, again, I am joined by my colleague, Ryan Todd, and our guest is our very dear friend, The Blocks lawyer or outside counsel and one of the most prolific writers are we allowed to say that? I think you can say most prolific, Frank. I mean, yeah. if you're laying it on thick. There we go. Writers on all things law in the crypto world. I call him Paley. I don't know if I should call him Steven for the podcast. It just sounds so unnatural. You can so call me- I'll call him Paley throughout, but full name Stephen Paley at uh, Anderson Kill down yes. in Washington, D.C. And I would just like to say in case my dad is listening, it's actually Paley. Oh. Yeah. We're going to do Paley. So let's <laughs> let's dive in. Uh, I know you got a piece coming out on the block every week or so. You, you just, you and, uh, Nelson. and uh, Nelson, that's right, put out these really interesting deep dives on, on the cases that come across your desk and that you find interesting. What are you working on right now? So this morning, and as a, a special thing for listeners of The Scoop, we're going to tell you a little bit about what we're publishing in today's Crypto Case Law Minute which is number 35, by the way, which means that Nelson and I have written up more than 100 cases uh, that's published opinions and lawsuits since we started in September or October. So anyone who thinks that crypto law is sleepy is completely wrong. We never have trouble finding material. This week, uh, I found a really, really interesting new opinion in the Ira Kleiman versus Craig Wright lawsuit. It's not something that's going to break major ground and sort of in the in in the legal world but as a as a litigator someone who's been in you know probably more than a thousand depositions taking and, and defending them it struck my interest and this has the incredibly interesting name this this opinion as order regarding plaintiff's request to redepose a defendant um, and it was issued yesterday so this is like breaking news so only only people who are listening to the scoop will know about this unless they also read CCM. So this new order was just issued in the ongoing and very heated Wright versus Kleiman litigation in federal court in Florida during a deposition that took place in I believe it was London last month. Mr. Wright himself objected to some of the questions that were posed to him, claiming that there was a court order that had been entered in Australia regarding his wife and also saying that um, he wasn't going to answer questions about his family. Now, let me give you a little bit of sort of a, a lead. And guys, I can go on and on. So if I say something that doesn't make any sense, I would really appreciate it if you would stop me. A thousand say, percent. But let's yeah. just real quick before we dive into yes. that, let's set up what this case is about, right? So we have Craig Wright, who was involved with this Australian gentleman, Kleinman, who is now deceased, right? And his estate is suing Wright over money he's owed. Yeah, there's like about a billion dollars or maybe more in crypto that's involved in Right, uh, right is Australian. Kleiman is American. Gotcha. And his brother, Ira Kleiman, is filing suit. And one of the issues in this case, interestingly, is uh, the identity of Satoshi. And is Craig Wright actually Satoshi? Which he has 
one point, Demiradon later said that uh, he said he was, then he wasn't. Now he says again that he is. So there's also parallel litigation going on um, in London right now, is my understanding. So yeah, this case is about um, who created Bitcoin and who's entitled to a whole ton of it. Mm-hmm. And uh, this lawsuit was filed over a year ago, and uh, it's really just starting to get going. And so what's this update now? Yeah. So let's let's dig into the update. So basically, like, in order to understand the significance of this opinion, you got to understand a little bit about litigation. So I'm going to give everyone a little bit of a civil procedure lesson. I promise it will be more interesting than the Civ Pro class that I had my first year in law school. Uh, but you know, and this is for free, folks. This is free. You have to shovel out, you know, shove out uh, thousands of dollars. This is legal 101 right here, right now. Right here scoop. on the scoop, law on the block. <laughs> so um, go ahead, yeah. Sure. So, and this will also help you understand law shows on television. So, to understand how this order uh, in which the court sort of smacked Craig Wright down, why it's important, you got to understand a little bit about litigation and how it works. And part of litigation is something called discovery. And discovery is exactly what it sounds like. It allows the parties in a lawsuit to get information from each other so they can understand claims and defenses and defend themselves and also prosecute their claims. Uh, Depositions are a part of the discovery process in American litigation. Uh, You also have things, you also have written requests, things called interrogatories, which are written questions, which you have to provide answers under oath. Requests for production, document requests, requests for admission, which are requests that you deny or admit certain things. Sort of as a sidebar, when I was a baby lawyer practicing back in St. Louis, I had a picture of a, it was basically like a corpse that had its skin flayed off. It was like an ink drawing that my parents had gotten at a flea market um, in, in New York in the 1960s. And I had it on my wall, and I, I wrote underneath it on a yellow sticky. I gave it a name, which was Junior Associate Answering Discovery. <laughs> so, lawyers who are listening to this, litigators, I think it's funny too. But one of the things you get to do in the discovery process is you get to take depositions. And depositions are actually kind of fun if you're taking them because you get to ask sometimes really um, inappropriate questions, but you have pretty broad leeway. You get to ask people about their And case. so Wright was basically pissed off about some of the questions that were being asked of him during this deposition. Wright was not happy about some of the questions. And I actually have um, some of the deposition testimony I have sitting right in front of me through the magic yeah, let's, of the interwebs. Yeah, let's, 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 let's hear it. So there's a, a long section of the deposition where this lawyer for Mr. Kleiman is asking Mr. Wright about his family, about his wife. And Wright keeps objecting and the lawyer says... And you can almost hear the frustration coming off the page. Sort of frustration, but also maybe he's amused. So we do not have to go through every single question. Are you refusing to answer any questions about Ms. Lynn Black? And Wright says, I'm not refusing to answer questions. I have an oath that has been filed within a court in Australia. I will not break oath and perjure myself or break oath. You are asking me to break oath, which I guess is what, like breaking bread? And unless instructed by a judge, et cetera, et cetera, I will not do that. Okay. The lawyer carries carries on, starts asking about a second wife, uh, about his second wife, and Wright objects to that line of questions by saying, my wife is privileged in the UK. My marriage is privileged. You should know that as a lawyer. Are you seeking to have me breach marital privilege? The, you should be doing an Australian accent right I, now. I would, but I don't want to embarrass you, and I'd like to be asked <laughs> back someday. I do a pretty good, uh, I do a pretty good Brooklyn accent, actually. <laughs> Dr. Wright, it will not be productive for us to have a conversation. I don't think the lawyer spoke like that. <laughs> about whether or not the time of when your wife's name changed from Ang to Watts is covered by privilege, but answer, I do not discuss my family, full stop. Question, Dr. Wright, you understand that you are being sued in this case. Answer, I understand perfectly well that a con man in America has made up a fraudulent claim, yes. Now, I read this testimony and I cringe a little bit because I will tell you that sort of as a professional, what you want your witness to do is answer the question, right? There are really only two grounds to object in a deposition. You can object to the form of the question. And in federal court, you can really just say form. That means like, you know, from television, objection leading, objection argumentative, you're actually objecting to the way a question is structured. Once you make that objection, the witness has to answer. The other is privilege. If something is privileged, like attorney-client privilege or subject yeah. to marital privilege, you can instruct a witness not to answer. The problem with, with what Mr. That's Wright, not privileged information. No. So whether or not you're, you were um, married or what your wife's name is, 
is not a matter of privilege. And also, it's really bad form. It's not the same for me to go to a doctor and say, all right, as part of this case, I want to know, you know, what were the illnesses your clients had, you know, weird example, but something like that. That'd be privilege. That's right. He, he, um, well, the first problem in my mind is it looks bad for a witness to do that. That's the lawyer's job. And when witnesses try and argue with lawyers, I will refer your attention, everyone, to Jack Nicholson and A Few Good Men. (laughs) You just, you will lose. If the lawyer on the other side has any skill at all, arguing with them is what they want you to do. I don't actually mind it when witnesses argue with me. I Mm -hmm. I can work with that. I What I find more, uh, what's a little bit hard to work with is a witness who just answers the question truthfully. Like, honestly, who cares? So anyway... I read the question, I read the testimony and cringe. The witness clearly thinks that he is smarter than the lawyer, besting the lawyer, uh, but by arguing like an advocate and acting like an advocate, I think he's walking in a trap. If it were my client, I would take him outside and say, cut it out. Anyway, they go to the judge in the middle of the deposition and the judge says, apparently they, they say, this is all, whether, he's priv- whether there's marital privilege is a matter of UK and Australia law. And the judge says, okay, I want you guys to file briefs and then I'll rule. So yesterday the judge ruled and the judge ruled for the most part against Mr. Wright saying the court finds the plaintiff's proposed topic areas are reasonably designed to identify Ms. Wright and Ms. Wad's knowledge of facts material to the issues in this case. They're designed to narrow the issues in dispute. They fall squarely within the court's intended scope for Dr. Wright's deposition. The court further finds that Dr. Wright's objections were unfounded under Florida law. They did not elicit marital communications and therefore would not have been protected by the Florida marital privilege. But the court then says something a little bit strange, which is that it's going to defer ruling on whether or not to reopen Dr. Wright's deposition until after he responds to the court's orders regarding his Bitcoin holdings, which I believe he did yesterday. So here's the thing, like this, it's a small order and a small ruling, but credibility with a court is like a wall, a wall of bricks. And you pull out enough bricks, eventually the wall will collapse. So this seems like a small loss to write, but um, you, I think if you start to see more, if you keep my- adding them up, it's going to, it's yeah. not going to be, uh, good for him in the long run. I, I, I'm more curious looking at this case from a macro level, the, the constant, um, examples of right saying that he's going to sue people who come out against him on, on the Satoshi thing. How can he do that? Like, how is that libelous for someone to say, I don't think you're this anonymous person. What, on what grounds can he sue people for that. I can't speak to UK law, which is much more favorable for a plaintiff in a defamation case. In the United States, if I were to say, I do not believe that you're Satoshi, that is an expression of opinion. Don't believe there's anything defamatory about it. Um, I'm not saying that a case filed a defamation claim in the US would necessarily be deemed frivolous, but it would be pretty close. Anyway, if, if he went into court in the United States and sued somebody uh, for saying that he wasn't Satoshi, I don't think that that case would survive motion practice. It's a little bit harder in the UK, but um, he may at have the problem. very least. At the very least, in the UK, at least this is the impression I'm getting from from your answer. You could get it far far enough that it would be an annoyance for whoever whomever uh, is on the other side of it. Well, so that, that's the... Pro- no one's going to get in trouble, though, for saying that he's not Satoshi. You know, it'd be like someone trying to sue me uh, if I said they weren't Santa Claus or something. Like, well, it doesn't make any sense to me. So truth is always going to be a defense. Um, but the problem is, in part, I would say, how people may have gone about it. So it's different to say... It's one thing to say, I do not believe you are Satoshi. It's maybe another thing to say... I can curse on a podcast, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe I shouldn't. It's a family podcast. <laughs> my kids you know, are listening. Call you a fraud. <laughs> I don't yeah, have any to, kids. To call you, so I'll keep it clean because my wife will also yell at me if, if I use foul language. It's another thing entirely to say you're a scammer and a crook and a criminal and you know to use uh, words of that nature, even actually in the United States, if you call someone a fraud, by the way, I should say none of this is legal advice. If you're listening to this, unless you're my client, I'm not your lawyer. 
Right? That's great. This could be legal <laughs> advice for us. Not legal advice, Frank. <laughs> so even actually in the U.S., if you call someone a fraud, there, there's case law that says that unless you imply that you have s- secret knowledge about someone's fraudulent information, that's also, it's basically rhetorical hyperbole. It, it's an expression of opinion. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit different. My understanding from speaking to U.K. lawyers is, is it's different there. But the problem with litigation is it's expensive. And judging from the docket in the climate case, these folks are not being shy about filing things. So they are filing every motion they can file. It's expensive. I don't think that they mind the notion of having to have another deposition, even if it involves flying a bunch of lawyers to England. Clearly, there's money behind it. And that's the, the flip side of um, you know suing people for saying he's not Satoshi um, is also that's even if you're right, and when someone sues you, it's expensive, and yeah. people bank on that. And it's, um, you know, it's not necessarily fair, but that's that's the nature of the game. And um, I, it appears that uh, Wright has um, the means, either his own or someone else's, to uh, vigorously prosecute his claims and to defend claims. Mm-hmm. Let's unpack for a second the Bitfinex uh, case because that's another. Um, headline, yeah, Lots hot topic. Tons of confusion. Like even basic things, like is this a lawsuit? Uh, what jurisdiction does the New York Attorney General's office have over issuing something like this over Bitfinex, which is based overseas? And you know what's going to happen next? Um, there's a lot of different agencies even looking at this thing. Like apparently the CFTC has its own investigation, and the DOJ, and there's also. The um, the Southern District of New York is looking at Reginald Fowler and that whole aspect with crypto capital. So how, yeah, there's so much to unpack here, especially from the legal perspective. And at the end of the day, I, w- I would contend, I'm sure you would too, that this is a major legal story, not just a crypto story. Um, yeah, it's like those Russian dolls, right? Yeah, exactly. Unpack, oh my God, yeah. So You I unpack, to- you open one thing and then you pops out another, yeah. So... It's a matter of public record. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to disclose it again because if I don't, somebody's going to go on Twitter and say Pally's biased. Um, I do uh, represent Bitfinex, who's a well-known and by some uh, reviled blogger who has mm-hmm. been uh, talking about Bitfinex and Tether for some time. Um, if anybody thinks that means I'm biased, you can please feel free to skip ahead of this next section. Um, so they are not involved as a party in the current uh, proceedings in New York State um, and are not involved as a party, obviously, in any of the the criminal proceedings. But anyway, with that disclaimer in place, I mean, I can certainly talk a little bit about the process and procedure. Uh, So one of the questions that I've been asked is what's actually going on in court in New York right now? Is there a lawsuit? I mean, you and I have talked about that, um, Frank. So there is a, it's an interesting proceeding available under New York law. Basically, the attorney general under something called the Martin Act has very broad power to oversee, investigate, sue, prosecute people for um, fraud in, the, in um, the sale of securities or commodities. It's um, one of the broadest um laws of its kind in the United States. It's been around, I believe, since the late 1920s. It wow. predates, I believe it predates the, uh, the, the Securities Act and the Exchange Act. Um, there's an interesting procedure in it, though. So if the attorney general believes that they have cause to sue somebody for relief under the Martin Act, they are entitled to investigate them first. And in the course of that investigation, can actually go to court and seek an order from a judge ordering that certain information be provided. Okay, okay. So this lawsuit is more so a way for them to get a court to give them a stamp of approval, a green light, to get more information out of the company for an, an ongoing investigation. Something like that, yes. It's, um, it's basically a way to sort of freeze the status quo. Sure. And... In the the uh, one of the questions that people have asked too is well they've asked for you know they've got an ex parte temporary restraining ex parte TRO temporary restraining order what is that ex parte means that it was done without notice to the other side um, in the in the private litigation context where uh, one private litigant is suing another it's very unusual to get an ex parte TRO 
there are due process concerns and considerations. The, the reasons why you're sometimes able to get that and uh, get it easier if you're a regulator is there's a concern that, and I'm not saying this is or is not true in this case, but there may be a concern that the other side will destroy documents, hide things. Mm -hmm. So what they did here was um, the AG went to a judge in New York, got an ex parte temporary restraining order. Um, and what Bitfinex slash Tether did when they found out about it was they went to court and they sat and they filed pleadings saying, judge, um, you know, this is outrageous and it should be modified or vacated. Yep. And the AG said, no, <laughs> totally not. And they had a hearing. I was not present at the hearing. I, I did read about. Um, some, they basically uh, wanted to pump the brakes on everything and say that, that you can't move forward with freezing what we're doing. Sure. And you and don't have the authority to do, to do so. To just freeze the credit line. Well, and also part of the order was uh, ordering um, ordering the other side to produce certain documents. The statute also gives the attorney general the authority to take depositions. We were just talking about depositions a few minutes ago. So I feel mm -hmm. like having given that civil procedure lesson, like I've actually laid some groundwork for talking about this as well. But the um, I would tell people that on the one hand, this is true in both state and federal and uh, reg regulatory investigations, a court is going to give a regulator a lot of leeway. The language of the statute at issue here actually gives the court a lot of leeway, a lot of discretion, a lot of ability to get stuff. There is uh, public policy um, interest at stake here. It's not. This is not a class action lawyer trying to get a lot of money. This is a regulator who's presumed to be acting in the public interest. On the other hand, regulators, just like private litigants, sometimes overreach. So, and if it's not money, it's fame or, or yeah, attention. Yeah, sure. That that's kind of what the other side said. So uh, the judge apparently, you know, the judge said. Both sides seem reasonable. You should, I'm going to give it a little time, see if you can work out something that maybe limits the scope. Now, I read a headline somewhere that said, Judge, critical of, of, of the uh, Attorney General's actions. I, I don't really think that that's a, a fair take. If you've been involved in any sort of litigation, whether as a private litigant or as a lawyer who handles cases, you know that people go to judges all the time and say, judge, they asked for too much. And the other side says, no, we didn't ask for too much. Yeah. Well, you even said before we sort of hopped on the podcast that, well, just to preface, I think uh, when people look at this case and they think about everything that Bitfinex has done, 74% is is backed when you know they, they marketed it to clients and their investors as, as it being fully backed and commingling funds yeah. to cover up the, the loss from crypto capital. You would think you would see all that, all this stuff that's, you know, operational, operationally murky and, and, and kind of, you know, crazy from, from most people's perspective, especially if you're coming from traditional finance um, and think, well, maybe that sort of like ridiculousness translates into their legal team. But your impression is that they've actually done a pretty good job representing and defending themselves. So Bitfinex and Tether have good lawyers. They made the, I mean, they made, I read their, their briefs. Um, but they've made good arguments. Uh, whether or not they're going to win is another subject. What's but their argument? What's their side? They're, they're Part of it is that the AG doesn't have the authority to sort of carry on. Like a jurisdiction issue. I mean, uh, I'm not so. even a security. Yeah, I'm, I'm not necessarily wild about that argument, though I, I might have made it too. I probably would have. And also, it's uh, we have enough money. Um, and if we don't get money, then it'll be bad for consumers and banks use fractional reserve all the time. I mean, the problem is they're not a bank. But not let, a bank let, at let's, all. I mean, setting that aside, um, they to have they did do a pretty good job briefing those issues. Now, what's interesting to me is um, the judge. And one of the things, particularly people who are in the software business or and you know many people in crypto have a software background, don't understand is there's an old saying uh, among lawyers, it's good to know the law, it's good to know the facts, it's better to know the judge. Now, I don't know the judge personally, and I don't Old know that Cohen. either side does. Yeah, but I did look the judge up. This judge That's right, because you were at the hearing. I was yeah, actually yeah. at the hearing. <laughs> so this, this judge uh, has on, been on the bench for a year, practiced as a commercial litigator for 30 years at a White Shoe New York firm, and under, is going to understand commercial litigation. 
a year or two ago could have been somebody who was involved in a case like this. My prediction is that the judge will probably reach the right conclusion. The, the order that was initially entered is probably going to be narrowed. I don't think this will go away. And I, my guess, and I have incidentally, if I had any inside information here, I wouldn't share it. Mm -hmm. I, I happen not to. Mm -hmm. um, my expectation is that the AG will continue. And even if the order were vacated in its, entirely, in, in its entirety, that would not prevent the AG from moving forward with a full-on Martin Act sure. lawsuit. Sure. You, what you about see sometimes regulators, incidentally, as an aside, there was this um, a big splash in the West Coast. The SEC filed a, a suit a company, I think it was BlockFest, and initially their request for a TRO or an injunction was denied. And, you know, people made a big deal about it. And then actually like three months later, the judge came back on, on a, another motion and actually granted it. So, you know, these things are, they're like each hearing, each brief, it's like a little battle. It's, it's a mistake to read too much into sure. these things. You have to look at the sort of whole field of play. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on Cohen's uh, decision to define a temporal scope? So I think that right, what does that mean for regular people like so me? the injunction I guess was undefined. What does an injunction mean? An injunction is an order by a court to do or not do something. Okay, so go, go ahead. So my understanding is the injunction didn't have a defined timeline of how long uh, those not to do something <laughs> rules were in place. <laughs> but uh, what are your thoughts on that? Kind of makes sense. I mean, an injunction without any sort of time limit particularly in the context of what's sort of it's a um, this is it's not quite a discovery dispute but it's uh, an enforcement action it's sort of a pre-lawsuit enforcement action related to um, discovery sort of setting the status quo maybe it does make some sense to provide a temporal scope you can say this is going to be for a month three months six months and then later come back and make it permanent but at this stage having an ex parte temporary restraining order uh, that has absolutely no time limit. I can understand how a judge might say, well, I'm sympathetic to the AG and they get a lot of deference. Um, we need to, you know, we do need to put some limitations into it and we can always revisit that. That doesn't seem unreasonable to me. Let's pivot now to, I think I think we covered everything on, on the Bifinex front, unless there's any, any, uh, Rocks left unturned, stones. What's the expression? I'm really bad at metaphors. It's like I don't one know of my weaknesses. No, it's good. We can but, move on. I'm going to pivot. I just turned around in my chair for the <laughs> folks playing along at home. Now he's now he's uh, he put on a wig. Yeah, and we're going to call him Paulina for the rest of the uh, interview. Hello, I'm wearing a wig. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, so I think your your podcast name should be Frankie Chaps. Is that is, is that kind of a dad joke? I'm yeah. not sure that is. Well, <laughs> I think I like. On a one podcast, I spoke about. I don't even know if we took it out because I honestly I can't listen to them because it gives me way too much anxiety. I don't listen back. to. Yeah, I won't listen to this actually. No, I can't because like, I, I know we're brilliant. So well, I don't need well, to. Not only that, not only that, but also just you I, too, Ryan. He'll listen. He'll listen. He because he goes I do research them on it and then does research. Oh on no, while we talk. I dissect every I'm word. Tweet about that today. It's they're really good, but. I talked about my uncle Nino doing illegal things on the podcast. I was like, I don't think. I'm I sure should. he he loves you now. Oh my yeah. god! Right? What were you talking? Were you talking about wire fraud? Or were something we talking like something that. else? Something yeah. like well, that's a great transition to what I want to move on to, which was this this um, this academic paper that I don't even know how Ryan found it. I think he just Google's my name every morning when he wakes up. But this insider trading. Ryan, explain it because you're the one that sort of found it, but it's basically about me and an article I wrote while I was at Business Insider that, that insinuates that I <laughs> could have taken a $74 million short position uh, after or before reporting that Goldman was reprioritizing its crypto strategy. Um, so you're buying lunch today? Yeah, exactly. Well, I have a very expensive taste. I'm just letting you know. Well, I've got $74 million that I can... Is that what that means? If you took a $74 no, million it doesn't. short position? It doesn't. No, no. no. Oh. That's just how much you put on, I guess, you depending well, on how 5%. low... Yeah, so you would have made 5x that or no? 5% of 75. 5% of that. Yeah. Okay. So, so, three, so 300 million bucks. So you can still... Uh, there's a great sushi <laughs> on place. On top of the $74 yeah, million. Murray Hill. What's the sushi so, place called? Go ahead. Talk about this thing. What, what's this all about, Ryan? 
So yeah, came across this uh, draft law paper written by uh, Andrew Verstein. Sorry if I'm not pronouncing the name right. Um, I'm sure he would want he me like, to tell you it's Is Verstein, he like the real Verstein. deal? I, I'm not sure. I don't know much about him and, and Where's the he work professor? that's gone. I want to say Wake Forest, but don't quote me on that. Um, but the, the paper's titled Crypto Assets and Insider Trading. Uh, insider Trading Laws Domain. And it just essentially is trying to walk through a framework to evaluate whether traditional insider trading laws should, should apply to crypto assets like Bitcoin or, or even utility tokens, what have you. Um, and it lays out a framework that, that I guess makes a case that insider trading laws should apply. Um, but they don't because my Well, it's also, it's that- different across jurisdictions and there's a lot of, a lot of just like stuff that's up in the air. I don't know if Pally. Yeah, but how is this connected that, back but. to me? What does this have to do with me? Well, you're going away to the big house. <laughs> well, no. So they basically. Well, let's pull it yeah. up. One sec. Let's pull it so up. So you should give for the folks listening at home. Where can they find this article? This fascinating article. <laughs> we can attach it in the notes. Yeah, we, we can. You should. I'd like to read it in full too. I just took a quick skim of it before we went on. But uh, yeah, so this paper highlights examples of potential insider trading, let's say front running a, an exchange listing of a coin. A uh, classic example is the Coinbase Bitcoin Cash uh, debacle, which I guess they did an investigation and came back negative. Mm-hmm. I think so. Um, but another example they give is media coverage, specifically journalists that either trade in their own PA or, or tip others off prior to writing a market-moving piece. And mm-hmm. the example this author provides is a business insider journalist, yeah. unnamed, unnamed, uh, who wrote about Goldman Sachs uh, abandoning the cryptocurrency desk. Which um, isn't what the story said. But and that story was written by it, you, Frank. It, it, raises, <laughs> it raises really interesting questions about insider trading rules as they apply to crypto. Um, because my understanding is that if if Bitcoin is a commodity, which which it's basically understood to be under under the CFTC in the, US, least, right? in the U.S., insider trading laws don't not that they don't exist in in commodities, but there have there's been I think one or two suits. It's very hard to bring an insider trading case to court in in the United States with, with commodities, at least that's my understanding because insider trading is sort of part of how commodity markets work, right? Like if I'm a, you know, a grain farmer and I know that, you know, a disease is, has uh, gotten to my crops and half my whatever supply is going to be wiped out, I can hedge that by buying, uh, buying futures in the futures market, making a bet on the other side that, that the price of um, those grains will go up because there'll be less of us there'll be less of them. Um, so almost it's almost like at least my understanding is that the idea of insider trading is baked into commodities. So that being said, um, the question at hand is how well does that make sense to have that same type of framework apply for Bitcoin? So I probably said like a thousand wrong things. So. No, 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 it's okay. I mean, um Sort of generally, I'm not saying you did, by the way. <laughs> um, so securities fraud, sort of broadly speaking, you are not allowed to uh, engage in deceit, misrepresentation, or other fraud in the sale of securities. And those terms have been, to a certain extent, defined by case law, by regs. And the CFTC has also taken the position that you can't lie, cheat, or steal in connection with spot market trading of commodities. Um, there's some question about, there's some courts that have disagreed with that position, but certainly mm. with respect to futures. And there's something guess. about breach of duty, right? Like, yeah, so you have to have, thing. right, there's a, there's a question that whether or not you possess something that is material and non-public and whether you have an obligation um, to withhold that information or refrain from trading on it. There's also another statute that's at issue that isn't really SEC or CFTC. I was actually on a panel about 10 months ago at an ABA conference on uh, legal ethics and cryptocurrency. And on the panel were another lawyer. There was a fellow from the SEC. And we also had a legal ethics professor. And, you know, one of the questions I had was, as a lawyer, um, what sort of 
you know, what sort of prohibitions are there both in terms of the ethics rules and otherwise on a lawyer trading on information that they have about a crypto asset. And the ethics professor pointed out 18 USC section 1343, which is the federal <laughs> wire fraud statute, which is really, really broad. Now, I personally would, of course, never trade on information about markets that I got from a client, but I hold a very, very, very small immaterial amount of Bitcoin, probably worth less than 100 bucks, and I've forgotten what the private keys are, in part because I do sometimes know things that um, where there would at least be an appearance of impropriety if I knew these things and I engaged in any sort of trading. Mm -hmm. So the, the worry that I would have about trading on inside information where you have an obligation not to are not just the SEC, the CFTC. Oh, by the way, there's the FTC and there are also the state regulators. I also worry broadly about the federal wire fraud statute, which is really, really broad. Shall I read from it or would that be too boring? Um, Might be kind of boring to read from it. Well, just give us the cliff notes. What's, All right. What's the... I, what's the main I, thing? I will read it in my Brooklyn accent. What's that? What's that? It's acronym, the, it's the TDLR? The yeah, TLDR. Yeah, give us Look, that. Um, whoever having devised or intending to devise <laughs> any scheme or artifice to defraud for purposes, there's actually a judge in the commercial division in New York who talks like this. <laughs> it's like being in my Uncle Freddie's house in like 1974. You grew up in Brooklyn, right? No, my my, uh, my family moved from there. Oh, gotcha. But that's another podcast. Yeah. Great stories. But anyway, I'm going to do that again without the incredibly good accent. Whoever having devised or intending to devise any scheme or artifice to defraud or for, or for obtaining money or property by means of false or fraudulent pretenses, representations, or promises transmits or causes to be transmitted by means of wire, radio, or television communication. By the way, kids, that includes the interwebs. Yada, 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 you broke the law and we're going to send you to prison for a long time and fine you. I believe it says, ooh, ooh 20 years 20 years imprisonment. So like that wire fraud statute is really broad and it captures yeah. a lot of content. So, so it kind of captures the insider trading. So sure. It doesn't even have to be insider training, trading necessarily, but if you do something for your own benefit to move a market that falls within something that seems fraudulent, um, you might get in trouble. Gotcha. So you share the opinion uh, that was discussed in this paper, but uh even though Bitcoin doesn't have, say, periodic information events like you see in equities with new information that is held by uh, senior management or, or people that are privileged to that information, regardless of that, there's still opportunities. Well, let me give you an example. For I'm gonna, fraud and, and I'll give you trade. a hypothetical. And let's say I'm going to use Marmot coin again, which is my Perfect. favorite coin. Let's say because I'm friends with Preston Byrne, um, I know that um, the uh, that PETA is going to be launching an investigation in coordination with federal animal cruelty advocates <laughs> against Marmot Coin, and I know Marmot Coin's listed. Uh, I believe Coinbase just listed them. They're already on Kraken and Polo. This I, is all hypothetical. Let's say, folks. like, this is obviously all hypothetical, um, but might be real in another universe. <laughs> Could be. Um, if I knew about that and it was told to me in confidence, let's say like I'm I'm obviously I'm not going to be Marmot Coid's outside general counsel because mm -hmm. they already pressed him. But let's say like Preston was indisposed and I'm Marmot Coid's general counsel and I have large Marmot Coin holdings and I find this out and I have reason to believe that's going to move a market. If I dump my holdings before the news goes public and the Marmot Coin regulators find out, I think I might be in a shit ton of trouble. Even I, if it's a uh, quote-unquote utility token. Every time right? you say utility token, I'm going to throw something at you. Good. I, <laughs> I hate that term. I hate the word too. Yeah. Um, it's actually featured, the word utility token is in another lawsuit that we covered in CCM this week. Like every single week, there is a utility token SAFT lawsuit. But anyway, so that's the, the problem is, I think part of the problem is the wire fraud statute. Uh, there are also ethical issues with a lawyer trading on information that their client gives them not intending for them like clients don't give us information so that we'll trade on it they give us information so that we'll advise on it. so i may have as a fiduciary i may have um different obligations than someone else but that's that's the maybe the problem like using stuff private stuff maybe it's not quote unquote insider trading but it's stuff i'm not really supposed to use i'm only supposed to use for purpose x and i use it for purpose y, purpose y in a way yeah. that is deceitful yeah makes sense and something that can be profitable. There was this really interesting Bloomberg article from April 22nd 
not about crypto, but it's about marmots. No, nothing about marmots, but it's about how some of these hackers get press releases on on earnings calls before they're put out, and then they they basically trade on this information. Um, Matt Levine talks about this, so it's really interesting. Hackers that will go short something and then purposely hack a company to drive share price down. Is that considered? An here's here's the background on it. From 2010 to 2015, this is directly quoting the article. Criminals breached newswire services to access earnings announcements before they were published. They used brokerage accounts to trade off the information, taking long and short positions, using options and other derivatives hours before it was released, and they also sold the data to other individuals on the black market. All and all, booking profits of more than a hundred million dollars. That's fucking crazy. Yeah, so there's the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, which that would be in violation of. Uh, it sounds like it might be a violation of the um, of, of uh, the, the Securities Act. So, the part of the problem is like you broke in yeah. to steal shit and then you traded on it. Yeah. So I think you got like double whammy. Two federal statutes <laughs> at least that you breached for the price of one. Um, what um bad? Don't do it. What haven't we we covered? I want to so talk much. about something interesting. Yeah, okay, there's so much. Let's talk about something interesting. Um, we, we, we talk about it a lot at the block, but MakerDAO. Oh, yes. Make and oh, I know this yeah. is something that's dear to your heart. Never understood it. First time um, I saw it three years ago. I think the interesting question that I've heard you talk about with various people is like, what would the court of law classify it as if, say, someone filed a suit against the MakerDAO? Well... It could be like those weekly governance calls. What are those? Who are those people? Um, you can. We can ask them. Yeah. Wh- why don't you ask them? Like, what is that? It sounds kind of like I said this on the Twitter before, and this is true. It's really hard to it's really hard to sue a protocol. Now, if you suddenly start to have governance calls, and those governance calls have an impact on an asset, and have an impact on interest rates. It starts to look like maybe you're a general partnership, mm-hmm. uh, an association, no and then maybe you've got joint and several liability. Like as soon as people start working together for some sort of common interest for a common business purpose, a court is going to probably look at that as um, some sort of default entity. Now, if I were a plaintiff's lawyer suing them, and I'm not saying I'm going to, uh, in fact, I'm not. I don't have any plans to do that at the moment. So, like, speaking hypothetically, if I were, which I'm not, I feel like lawyers get, have to clarify right? this. You know, all this the is time. just to this say that just, I am not suing MakerDAO. This is a hypothetical. Yes, and any lawyer who does and uses my ideas, I will expect a case of herring and uh, some guppies to my guppy wallet address. We should talk about match pool another time. We're too. probably going to get like a bill for a couple thousand dollars for this podcast because you're buying me lunch. Legal advice we're getting. So I, I think if you're a plaintiff's lawyer and, you, and uh, let's say you represent someone who loses a lot of money, yeah. Let's say well, let's say you have a borrower that what for whatever reason thought rates weren't going to rise. Yeah. So it, I would probably allege some sort of uh, some John Doe defendants on a personal basis. Probably allege that there is an association of general partnership. There's a foundation too, like there's there like yeah. an actual MakerDAO foundation. And they're in the them. process of like spinning off like a profit-making entity associated. With, with the broker dealer. Profit? I mean, come on. Well, sure, but I mean like. <laughs> <laughs> Are they, they're really a nonprofit? That's kind of. I don't know if they're like registered. Well, the schism was between people that wanted to be fully decentralized and. Yeah. Well, look, I, I, what I Community come back owned. to is like, I, I know it sounds like I'm being light about this, sort of lighthearted, but it's really true. If you want to be protected from liability, like a protocol, pure protocol that can't be changed by people, that has some downsides. Like sometimes you want to change things, but like a protocol that can't be changed by people that once you put it in place, it runs. It's very hard to sue that. As soon as you start adding human discretion, that's when you need governance. And that's yeah. when you start looking at plaintiff's lawyers saying, sounds like a loan, maybe truth in lending applies. The Truth in Lending Act applies. There was just an article about that. Yep. Somebody asked, was it your article or somebody else? Um, somebody at the other place. Yes. yes. But I'm actually we, speaking, with, passed, their, I'm speaking with their general counsel this Are afternoon. You? Yeah. So, uh, you know, I would say, I mean, my view, like as a sort of conservative lawyer, notwithstanding my wonderful accents and podcast presence, um, yeah, I would just upfront the risks if I were putting it together. But if you want to avoid the risks entirely, you know, d- 
decentralized protocol, but actually a protocol. As soon as you start having the ability to make discretionary changes, you're exposed. And if you're exposed, just deal with that. Or accept that, you know, Google joint and separate liability and see if you can live with it. Like yeah, weekly no. governance calls where people are identified and the notes, the notes are all like up or put in like Our a own repo. Teo identifies many of the participants every week. It's insane. And so a lot of them are right here in New York, right? Yep. In the United States. Yeah. Um, I'm not wishing any lawsuits on anyone. In fact, the opposite. But I think people who do that thinking, but crypto are in for some cold water in their face, unfortunately. And it's not just, you know, you know, not just to pick on maker. It's a no. question that hangs over the entire so-called decentralized finance space where, you know, from my perspective, I see things like we're going to tokenize the S&P 500 <laughs> or we're going to offer you know, a synthetic way to track different stocks. And there is a whole slew of legal issues that they're just ignoring because it's crypto or at least we'll figure, it they're out just not, we'll figure it out later. Like tokenizing the S&P 500, the S&P 500 index is, is trademarked. You can't just tell people that this is what like you're, you're offering the same product that exists somewhere else. So young, such a status shill. <laughs> <laughs> but, but again, like the point I'm making is that you know, these people are trying to be bold, brazen, and, and sometimes that involves doing things like, you know, where we have situations like Uber, right? You know, it's an incredible product for some people. And, and to get to where they got today, they kind of had to dance around many different laws. So maybe they're being bold. Maybe they're being, I don't know what, but a lot of the changing the world business is just fancy talk that's all around making a lot of money. And I got no problem with people <laughs> doing that. But sometimes I look at it and uh, it's, you know, where there's smoke, there's either fire or a steaming pile of bullshit. It's <laughs> mostly people going after money, which is okay. But just like, why don't you just admit it and stop pretending like it's anything other than meet the new boss, same as the old boss. That's what I find occasionally For sure. really frustrating. It's very pessimistic view. No, it's not. It's just realistic. I still like, I, I think Bitcoin is incredibly cool and I'm still bullish on its future. And it, listen, if you look at any startup market, 95% of startups fail. It, crypto shouldn't be any different. And yeah. the fact that a lot of people will fail isn't a knock on the technology. It's a reflection. Yes, we really of appreciate it. Well, Stephen, we got to wrap this up, Stephen. So, <laughs> no, but seriously, something that's been on my mind, and I think it'd be a good way to sort of close things out because it's going to involve you doing some prognosticating. But I remember a year ago speaking to the uh, CEO, or no, he was the president at the time, Chris Kincannon at CBOE, the exchange. And his prediction for the end of 2018 that, that was that we would see the rise of class action lawsuits against some of these ICOs. And we really haven't seen any. I was expecting funds to sort of sprout out around these, these suits and, and, it's at first glance, it looks like a lot of these folks are going to get away with with operating securities. Statutes of limitations are long. Um, I see new lawsuits being filed every day. Uh, just the other case that we filed today involves uh, people who put two and a half million dollars into a SAFT for some sort of decentralized exchange where it looks like they allegedly raised $33 million and didn't provide anything, uh, claimed it was a utility token, Ryan, and they uh, provided a utility that uh, was was uh, nothing. The SEC statutes haven't begun to run yet either. the utility is that it's a security. Utility token. <laughs> My good friend David Silver just filed a class action in Southern District of New York earlier this week uh, related to the OneCoin that's a pretty crazy case. Uh, yeah, that, which is crazy. Today. I think so. There, one of the optical issues, of course, is class action lawyers work on spec. They take a third or twenty five percent, and class actions take a long time. So they can take a couple of years, three, four, What's five. Spec? Uh, it's uh, they work on contingency. So if if there's no recovery, they don't get paid. So gotcha. You got to have a good case, and you got to be able to see that you're going to collect the money. So if you don't have if you don't have a plaintiff, but you can end up working three years for and not getting bupkis. Gotcha. And bupkis is doesn't it's a nice word, but it doesn't actually buy bialis, right? Um, so I think part of the issue is sort of economic, financial. You need people who've got expertise who can find the right plaintiff, see the right recovery. Like the Tezos class action is is a really interesting case in point. It appears that so far 
Um, I think people have actually made money who bought into the ICO. So there's like a standing damages issue there for class action lawyers. So on the one hand, you have some successful token sales where it might be hard to find a plaintiff. You've got people outside the United States. Recovery is uncertain. On the other hand, you might have um, you might have ICOs where all the money is gone. And if all the money is gone, regulators might come after folks. And I would expect, I actually expect to see a ton of regulatory enforcement action later this year and going into next year. I think it's because they've just been working on it or they've been working on it. And what the SEC, they've done this before. What they'll do is they'll have get a formula together and they'll just start um, filing. So they have, they have a formula for the investigation, right? They do the investigation. Uh, if people are willing to play ball, they'll enter into basically, uh, there'll be a consent order issue that will have um, sort of basic remedy that the, the, the other side agrees to. Um, if not, uh, they can either uh, file before an administrative law judge or go to go to a federal judge, an Article Three judge. That stuff is just going to take a little bit more time to work its way out. But what people don't understand who haven't been exposed to mm-hmm. litigation regulators is um, it takes time. Like you'll actually see enforcement actions where there was a recent FinCEN enforcement action. Um, the facts that were at issue, I think the sort of underlying facts. 2015, 2016, three, four years ago. So give it time. Um, I don't know how much successful plaintiff's class action work there will be. There might be more sort of private one-on-one litigation, but I think we're going to see a ton more of it. And I think the regulatory enforcement stuff is going to, um, I think we're going to see a ton of it in the next year. That's my take. That's Pally's prediction from Law on the Block. Love it. And what a great way to end. Oh, my goodness. What a fun (laughs) episode. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. Catch you next time. We'd like to take a minute to thank our sponsor, Cash App. Cash App has been the number one in finance on the App Store for almost two years. It was the first major peer-to-peer payments app to support Bitcoin. And it's still the fastest and easiest way to on-ramp fiat. No more waiting five days for your ACH transfer to come through. With Cash App, you can buy Bitcoin instantly. When you're ready to take full ownership of your private keys, just use Cash App to scan an external wallet's QR code. It's really that simple. Cash App also comes with standard banking features like direct deposits and others your bank would never even consider, like Cash Card, a customizable debit card that lets you instantly save every time you use it at Lyft, Whole Foods, Chipotle, Chick-fil-A, Starbucks, Dunkin', local coffee shops, and a whole lot more. Download Cash App today from the App Store or Google Play, and thanks for listening.